This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt right. And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week, we're bringing you two stories about stressful situations in the field and in the lab. Our first story this week is from Erica Silberman. It was recorded in March 2017 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme of the night was brain awareness. A bunch of years ago, uh, my fiancé, Peter, and I, who were actors at the time, so yeah, we were working in restaurants, and... uh, (laughs) We had just gotten this amazing, beautiful, sunny, huge apartment in Brooklyn. And two months after we moved in, I moved my divorced psychotherapist mother, who had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, in with us. And uh, she couldn't live alone anymore, so my sisters and I thought it was best she lived with me because I was managing her care, and because basically my sisters had a lot of crap going on in their life. And I got, I got... I was the one. And, and my fiancé, Peter, thought, yeah, this is a great idea. We have this space. This is wonderful. And he was super supportive, and he was great with the move. So I plucked my mother out of Connecticut, and I dropped her into our Carroll Gardens, Italian-American, forget-about-it neighborhood. And uh, the deal was that Peter was not responsible for her. He didn't have to cook for her or clean up after her or, you know, walk her or bathe her or help her with her dressing or anything like that. And my mother was really, really sweet and really, really loving. And she didn't have the usual, like, Alzheimer's changes, like being all of a sudden really angry, having a complete personality change, and being like really agitated and aggressive and and searching for things in the drawers and rattling things around. She she just um, would ask the same questions all day long, like, um, when am I going home? And uh, what day is it? And what day is it? And what day is it? And then she would ask like, Erica, very seriously, do you have any chocolate? And I didn't. So then she would say, does Peter? And, but this went on like all day long, all day long and all night. And, um, and she didn't wander. She didn't like, she wasn't a big, like, we weren't scared that she was going to run away, which is what everybody's scared about when somebody has Alzheimer's. And uh, she did have this one weird thing where she was obsessed with our bedroom. Like, she didn't open any other door. And this, this apartment had, like, lots of closets. It was very unusual. And she just was obsessed with our bedroom door. And she would, in the middle of the night, open the door and then stand there, expressionless and silent. And it was really creepy, and Peter was really creeped out about it. And... <laughs> 
So I'd have to get up and walk her back to her room. And then this would happen like several times a night. And Peter was like, just like, whoa, I can't, I can't deal with that. And so we put a little latch on the door. But then it was like having, you know, Jacob Marley and his chains, you know, Scrooge's dead partner, like trying to tell you something. And, you know, so I would, I would go, I'd go back with her and I'd lie in bed with her. And I would answer her questions over and over until she went to sleep and then she'd come back and it went on all night long. And then I would go back to my bed and I would imagine what it would be like to be her her, and like everything's so confusing and crazy. And then I would drive myself crazy and then I just quit acting. And so, because I, you know, the real world was a little more important right then. And so I can imagine being in the imaginary world. I was in the imaginary world. I was imagining what it was to be her. And so one night I... Um, stayed late at the restaurant and I had a drink and then I had another drink and then I had another drink because you know if your mother has Alzheimer's <laughs> you're gonna want a drink you just are and uh, so I got back late and uh, Peter was furious and he started yelling at me and my mother was you know this is about me isn't it you're fighting because of me aren't you and I told Peter if he wanted to yell at me he would have to yell at me outside because it was upsetting my mother so we went out onto the street and we went in front of the community garden and uh, Peter was yelling at me there by the whatever flowers were blooming and I was crying and then all of a sudden the cops showed up and uh, they separated us and uh, the male cop took Peter over to the fence of the garden and I got escorted into the female cop's car and she asked me what was going on and I explained it all to her and she looked at me and I felt like the most irresponsible parent ever like just such trash and she said huh that's hard maybe you should call a support hotline I said yeah and she said maybe you know you shouldn't drink drinking makes things worse I was like yeah I was going to drink. So, <laughs> so after the cops left, I decided that uh, I should take Peter seriously when he said to get my mom and her Alzheimer's out of the house so he could get some work done and have some peace. But the problem was finding a place for my mother because she wasn't a New York resident and we didn't know where she was going to be. And uh, she wasn't really ready for an Alzheimer's place because... That also cost a lot of money uh, because they considered her a, a flight risk, and so everything had to be on lockdown. And she, w- you know, she just wasn't going to play these Alzheimer's game like Simon Says and uh, and sing Alzheimer's songs like uh, Row 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 Your Boat. And and the people who were there doing that stuff, who really were deep into Alzheimer's. They were just going to scare the bejesus out of her. So I was racking my brain for where to go, and I was stomping my way to the bank one day. And, like, no sleep, crazy self-pity, of course. So um, all of a sudden I see this glass door, and spelled out in these, like, 99-cent store gold metallic letters, it says, the Eileen Dugan Senior Citizen Center. And below that was this flyer, And on the front, it had this caption that said, Happy Father's Day. Definition. Father's Day, just like Mother's Day. But you don't spend so much. (laughs) So I opened the door. And the door opened. It wasn't locked. And I peeked in. 
and I grabbed a flyer and I raced home. And um, I forgot to mention that my mom, one of the things about Alzheimer's is that you eat a lot. Like she was on this like hobbit diet where like it was like several meals a day. And I had already made second breakfast for her. But when I got home, I had to make 11sies and, and lunch. And then I waited until she was thoroughly engrossed in picking lint off the floor because that was one of the activities she could do. And I made a call to make an appointment. And this guy named Matt answered the phone and uh, ex- sort of explained the situation, sort of like left out the fact that she had Alzheimer's. And uh, <laughs> Matt said, oh, that's okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. She, you know, it doesn't matter if she's a New York residence or Connecticut or, you know, if she has a little dementia, because that's sort of what I said. Um, it's fine. She's totally welcome here. So I, w- I was really happy, but then I spent the next 24 hours trying to figure out, like, how, what am I going to say to my mother? Because if I tell her where we're going, she's not going to go. We're at the office. We get there. And there are all these women in the office, and they're all, like, laughing and talking. And then Matt shows up, and he greets us. And Matt is super, super friendly. And my mother is super, super suspicious of anyone who is super, super friendly. (laughs) And he greets her, and he's telling her all about the programs and the arts and crafts. And my mother is just looking at him blankly. And he says, hey, we'll find something here for you to do. Do you like bocce ball? We have a bocce ball court here. And my mother turns and looks at me. And she's like, what the hell is this guy talking about? And I look at her and I'm like, I don't know. Why don't we take the tour? So we go on the tour. And along the way, Matt's greeting everybody by name. And everybody's laughing and cracking up and you know, gossiping and playing cards and doing arts and crafts and reading papers to each other and laughing. And we get to the bocce ball court. No one's playing bocce ball. But there are four guys at this folding table and they're playing poker. And then there's this really agitated guy standing behind them, and he's yelling. And he's like, "Uh, what, why can't I play? And the guy's like, cause you cheat, that's why. And he says, I don't cheat, I got money, you want my money? Fuck, take my money. And he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out this crumpled dollar bill and he throws it on the table. And the guys are like, whatever. And, And he looks at them and he says, My money's no good, huh? Is that it? My money's no good? You cheat, the guy says. And so the guy says, I don't cheat. I win. You don't like me playing with you because you don't like losing. I'll show you how this game is played. You want to know how this played? I'll put a bullet in your back. So I'm holding my mom's hand, and I just sort of squeeze it. And I'm thinking, wow, this place is colorful. <laughs> this is like, this is not, wow, okay. And, and then the man, the agitated man, starts pulling his pants down. And Matt races over to him, and Matt starts yelling at him. And the man, the agitated man, yells back at him. And they're yelling at each other until finally the agitated man, he calms down. And Matt rushes over to us, and he's like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, oh my God, I'm so sorry. It's, it's okay, he's, he's, he doesn't have a gun. He was just trying to show that he doesn't, he's not holding any cards. It, 
it, he's not dangerous. It's not dangerous here. It's a very safe place. You know, there's always one in every bunch, right? Right? <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, this is fantastic. I've got Matt on the defensive. He's never going to know that my mom has Alzheimer's. And if he does, he won't care. <laughs> so he says, would you like to continue the tour? And I'm like, absolutely. So he turns to my mother and he says, Anne, your daughter tells me that you like to dance. Well, I've got a surprise for you. And my mother says, I can't wait. <laughs> so I thought that the bocce ball court was the crown jewel of the senior center, but I was wrong. The real crown jewel the real hope diamond of the Eileen Dugan Senior Citizens Center was hidden behind these closed double doors. And when we get to them, Matt opens the doors and this tsunami of music pulls us in. And I gasp. And then Matt shouts over the music, enjoy yourselves, take your time, come find me when you're done. And he disappears like Glenda the Good Witch, <laughs> without the bubble, or the fanfare. And I'm taking this all in, I'm in super slow motion. There's this little old man, little dapper old man playing the keyboard, and he's singing Frank Sinatra tunes into the microphone. And people are dancing, and the people who are seated are tapping their walkers and their canes. And, <laughs> They're having such a good time. And it's like, it's like that scene in The Godfather, that wedding scene, you know, when Al Pacino tells Diane Keaton, that's my family, Kay, it's not me. It's like this scene has been playing out for years since they shot that picture and the whole cast has aged into senior citizens. And we sit down and we watch it and I'm smiling these big Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade smiles. And I'm imagining my mother here laughing and dancing, dancing in a way that my dad never danced with her. And I'm just thinking, this is just so fantastic. And I'm in this state of awe. And I look over at my mother to see if she's in the same state of awe. She's in a state of awe, right? She looks like somebody just gave her front row seats to a pole dancing contest. <laughs> at Show World, the first round, not the finals. <laughs> so I nudge her. I nudge her because I could always make fun of her and she would laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh until she spit and then, you know, kind of choked. And so I nudge her and I, and I do this kind of like shimmy, ha, 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 you know, and she, and she kind of gets on board with me. And then this cute, suave man sort of cha-chas over to us and he says to me, would you like to dance, pretty lady? And I'm like, oh, I'm so charmed. I'm like, oh my God, um, <laughs> that's so sweet. Uh, I'm okay, but um, maybe my mom would like to dance with you. Mom, would you like to dance with this charming man? And she, my mother, who has those like really great manners and she's so sweet and kind. She'll like take care of your baby if you're stressed out on a subway and she'll hold it for you a while to so give you a break. My mom says, no.
And I look at her and I say, Mom, you love to dance. Why don't you dance with the man? I want to go home. It's loud. And I apologize to the little man. I tell him, I'm so sorry. I guess my, my mom's not feeling well. And, and maybe another time, right? And the man sort of shrugs and he cha-chas over to another old woman. And we get out on the street. And my mom has her hands over her ears, you know, for dramatic purpose to tell me that it was really loud in there. And, you know, I should have known because my mom hates loud sounds. And I realize I can't do this. I can't. There isn't going to be a place for her. There isn't going to be a group she's going to like because my mom never liked groups and she's not going to like them now. And so we go back and I call my sisters and I tell them, I can't do this. You know, I, it's not going to work. I, I, don't, I don't have the money to like stay home all day and take care of her. And I don't have the money to pay for someone to take care of her. And Medicare doesn't pay for companionship because they don't consider Alzheimer's to need companionship or supervision, which is really the one thing that people with Alzheimer's actually really need. And so after a lot of negotiation, like a lot of negotiation... My oldest sister, who had a child at that time, a young child, um, she says that she'll take my mom in and share her child care with my mom. And, uh, and my other sister and I will go up on weekends and other conditions. And so, so my mom is going to move, and it's going to be one of many moves. And then um, Peter and I break up. And then after my mom moves out, I join lots and lots of groups. Thank you. That was Erica Silberman. Erica has been a playwright, director, producer, and in-home color consultant. She's been published in the best monologues from the Last Frontier Theater Conference, Play Scripts, Teachers and Writers, and the Sunday Salon. In the spring of 2018, her play, In the Night Everyone is Equal, will be produced by the Dramatic Question Theater at Art NY. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. Hey everyone, Artistic Director Aaron Barker here. If you get through with today's episode, but you're still thirsty for science entertainment, we recommend checking out the Texture app, which gives you unlimited access to 200 of your favorite magazines, including publications like Wired, Popular Science, and The Atlantic. With the Texture app, you can check out all 200 of these magazines and their back issues anytime, anywhere. To start your free trial of Texture, go to texture.com collide. If you choose to continue after your free trial is up, podcast listeners will get texture for just $9.99 a month. That's over 30% off of their listed price. There are also great gift options available for the holiday season. So go to texture.com slash collide to start your free trial today. That's texture.com slash collide. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Pat Furlong. It was recorded in May 2017 at Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts at a show produced in partnership with STAT and sponsored by Blueprint Medicines. The theme of that night was Celebrating Science. I'm from Middletown, Ohio. It's a place you've never heard of unless you've read the book Hillbilly Elegy. 
My parents are from Germany. They told me I was from good stock. I married a physician, and we had children, four of them. I worried about two of them, the two boys, but I was pretty much dismissed that they were fine because my husband was a football player for Notre Dame, and these little boys would grow up big and strong, just like him. On sunny days in summer, I sat outside with a lot of women on a rock wall that separated driveways, and we watched our children play. Patrick was two, Christopher was four, Michelle, or Mush, was six, and Jenny was eight. And that continued for several years. But in 1984, those ages increased by two years. They were four, six, eight, and 10. And when we were watching them on those rock walls, they were doing things like somersaults in the grass. They were trying to ride their big wheels. And Chris, my six-year-old, was really struggling to pedal that big wheel. Uphill was impossible. Downhill was easier, but still not easy. There was a moment I was standing there talking to my neighbors when I heard a blood-curdling scream. Chris was in pain. I ran over and grabbed him. I checked him for cuts and bruises, but there were none. But what I saw is a calf muscle that was just expanding in size and redness, a single calf muscle. I carried him into the house. I put him on the bed, and I watched him all night, gave him a little Tylenol, rubbed that little sore leg. And in the morning, when Tom was going to work, he came to the door and said, take Chris to see Steve Pledger, our orthopedic friend. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, nothing. I don't know. But I think he needs to be checked. So that morning, I grabbed Chris, got a babysitter in for everyone else, and we went up to Steve's office. And he walked into the waiting room, and he took one look at Chris, and he said, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I'd never heard the word. I'm a nurse, but I blanked out all pediatrics because children shouldn't get sick, and after all, I'm from good stock, and I married a physician, and we couldn't have any illness in the family. I just didn't have any history of it, so plan A was healthy children. And I said, so tell me, what does this mean, this word Duchenne muscular dystrophy? And he said, well, his muscle is missing something. We're not quite sure what it is. It was 1984. But we know his muscle won't survive. So he's not going to walk for a long period of time. Probably before he reaches his teenage years, he'll stop. By the time he's in his teens, he won't be able to raise his arm to his mouth. And this is 100% fatal. So what does Patrick look like? And I said, it's the same body type, two years younger. And he said, then you have two with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So I came home that day, and by the time I pulled in the driveway, the entire neighborhood knew Duchenne muscular dystrophy and probably a lot more about it than I was able to grasp. And that day I went to the bank because I thought, well, I'll just cure it. I'll just fix it. So my husband was at his office in tears, and I went to the bank because the bank was giving out a lot of money to doctors, and I borrowed $100,000 and signed my husband's name. At dinner, Tom asked me what I did that day, and I said, well, I borrowed $100,000. And he said, let me get it right. We're borrowing for my office, this house, practically for food, and you've 
added 100,000. I said, uh-huh. But I have to cure this disease. He said, you won't. You can't. Nothing can happen. I then ordered in all of the publications, keep in mind Al Gore had not given us the internet, so I had to order publications and it took two weeks. When the publications came, I circled the PIs of those publications. And I called one of them in Chicago and I went there. And this was a person looking at estrogen because the philosophy was women didn't get the disease so it must be something related to estrogen, isn't it always? <laughs> so I spoke to him and he said, you're a desperate parent. I can't really talk to you because how could you ever understand science? So I had to rethink what I was doing. I developed a list of questions. And the questions were, how well is this disease characterized? Where are the gaps? Where's the money? Who's giving the money? And is there a standard of care? I couldn't go to any more physicians that were going to dismiss me because that wasn't going to work. So I became an imposter. I was a postdoc looking for a job. Or I was a medical student thinking about doing an internship at a various neurology clinics. And I went around the world to understand my questions as an imposter. I was in the University of Pennsylvania at a lab when the investigator, and before that, no one even asked me the question, who said, who are you really? And I said, I'm a postdoc looking for a job. And this individual said to me, oh, so you know so-and-so from Minnesota? I said, oh, yeah, he was, he was one of my uh, teachers. And he said he doesn't exist. So I said, all right, I'm a parent. I want to get everyone together. I had been visiting by this time 35 different PIs. And he said, we're not coming. We're not coming to a desperate parent. So on his desk was Time Magazine with French Anderson and, and Michael Blaze, who had done the first gene therapy experiment. And I said, they're coming. And he said, how long are you going to lie about this? I said, no, I promise they're coming. I promise, I promise they're coming if you all get together. And he said, if we all get together and they come, we'll come. So I left his office. I flew to California to find French Anderson and went to Washington for Michael Blaze. And I begged them, not as an imposter, but as a desperate mom. And they came to that first meeting and they walked up the aisle and said, in 18 months, we're gonna cure Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And I saw 35 scientists decompensate, jugular veins increase, screaming, yelling, we can't. There are no standards of care. There are no critical masses of people that are funded in institutions looking at specific areas. There's an area of gene and cell therapy that has to be investigated. And there is inflammation in this disease that is not being addressed. So I wrote down a business plan, centers of excellence, standards of care, and a plan. Our first investment after I started PPMD, a small organization, was to create two centers of excellence, one at the University of Pittsburgh and one at UCLA. Pittsburgh for gene therapy, UCLA for inflammation. And then I went to Washington to find out why the NIH didn't seem to care about this rare disease. And I learned that they cared about things that were in law. So I pounded the pavement in Washington, D.C., and I found some friends, the late Senator Wellstone, Susan Collins out of Maine, and others, Roger Wicker. And they asked me to write a law. And I didn't ever know how to write laws. And I didn't remember Civics 101. So I wrote down standards of care, centers of excellence, and a plan. 
that was translated into legislative language, and in 2001 in the House and Senate, it was introduced as a law, as a potential law. And in December 2001, if George W. Bush, Bush did nothing good, he signed the MD Care Act into law. And so from then until now, we have a $700 million investment from NIH, Department of Defense, and the Center for Disease Control in muscular dystrophy. We have standards of care. We have a disease well characterized. We're knowing the gaps. We understand the questions. Industry is here. 46 companies are looking at gene and cell therapy downstream. We have 24 clinical trials. So we've made a difference, and now we have a $6 billion investment in this disease, and we feel like there's hope. But my sons didn't survive. They died seven months apart on September 29th, 1995, and April 29th, 1996, at the same hour, they died. One died of pneumonia, and one died of a broken heart. But I believe from then until now that the universe enabled them to me so I could change one piece of this disease and drive it to therapies for every other boy so that no family would go to their friendly doctor and hear there's no hope and no help. They will rather hear that we know this disease well, we have standards of care, and that this child will not die in their teens, but today they have a lifespan of 30 years old. And with the gene therapy opportunity, opportunities and 20 different kinds of trials in 46 companies, there is a life that you will live and it will be a good one. And you will be here for a long time and reach your dreams. Thank you. That was Pat Furlong. Pat is the founding president and CEO of Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, the largest nonprofit organization in the United States solely focused on Duchenne muscular dystrophy. In 1994, Pat, together with other parents of young men with Duchenne, founded PPMD to change the course of Duchenne and ultimately to find a cure. If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon.com. If you sign up at any level, it helps us produce these stories and get them out to the world. And that is something we very much believe in and hope you do too. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker, with help from our many vendors and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast are from shows produced by Nissa Greenberg, Aaron Barker, Christine Gentry, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall and Oberon for hosting these shows, and to Google Docs for keeping track of jokes so I don't repeat them. Thanks for listening. <laughs>